Good morning. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're at this wonderful place in the um, the course of this thing, this letter he writes to them. And as we've been reminding ourselves some of the weeks, uh, just to call it back to our attention, when we read these letters like this, are two-way conversations, but it's like listening to somebody talking on the phone. You can only benefit from hearing one side, so you've got to kind of think about what's being said on the other side. And as we've been thinking about the context and what Paul is dealing with, Jews fell out of favor in Rome because of the conflict between Jews and Jewish Christians. Uh, in fact, around 40 AD, they, the fighting became so intense that the emperor at the time said, that's it, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more, and he banished Jews from Rome. That lasted about five years until another emperor came on the scene, and then Jews and Jewish Christians started to filter back into Rome and into the house churches. Um, Paul writes this letter soon after the Jews returned to Rome. Uh, Jews believed that receiving the commandments made them superior to the pagan Gentiles. They didn't have a God to give them the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai as God gave the Jews, and they felt like that gave them bragging rights. It made that they were superior. And what Paul wants Jewish Christians in particular to to operate by is to understand that um, they want he wants them to see themselves as couriers, transmitters of good news to the Gentiles, not to be superior to them, but to serve them. And for this reason, Paul highlights God's purposes and promises. There's a sheet in your worship folder. Let's work our way through this portion of Paul's letter. In verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, a verse that we are familiar with, perhaps, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We naturally divide life into good and bad. And if you think of your life, what in your life would you describe as good? You would like to retain it. What in your life would you describe as bad? And you would want to contain it. You'd like to keep it farther away. Um, what this verse indicates is that um, you are connected to God. God is connected to good. That means you're connected to good. It would indicate that our connection to God is firm, and that's what Paul's going to talk about. God is good. So if you're connected to God... You're connected to good, and good is ahead of you. Um, all things work together for good because of God's ability to make this happen. Uh, there are some qualifiers. There's a few things that give some context and that kind of stipulate for whom would this promise be true. And he says a couple of things for those who love God. And he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what it means is that when good is defined as God's purposes being accomplished, seen from this perspective, 
there are no bad circumstances. There are things that feel bad. We could think that this is bad, and so we will think and feel, oh, this is bad. But from God's perspective, bad doesn't exist because all things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purposes, even though the, even the things that don't feel good. Paul goes on to talk about God's good purposes, what some of these are. Look what it says in verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It tells us that God foreknows, predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies, which kind of from a spiritual perspective is from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, from the beginning to the end. He foreknows, and predestines, and calls, and justifies, and glorifies. In this verse, divine will totally eclipses human will. These are things that God does, and when he does them, they occur. And this raises some questions for us. And this passage has been batted around and made to say all kinds of stuff. It raises the questions, and this is the question, what about human choice? I mean, if it's about God's foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification, what role do we have? Is our role significant? Some have, and this is an argument about this, it would indicate that God is determinative and that he chooses some to respond to his news and he chooses those who aren't. Yes, no, yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Some even say God predestines some to be included and some to be excluded. This has been a debate that is raised through the course of the church. Um, some try to get around this by thinking about foreknowledge. And they say, well, God predestined, this gets a little tricky, but I'm just going to tell you what people do to try to get around this thing. Because, again, it seems like God's divine will completely eclipses human will. So they indicate this. Well, oh, here's the deal. God predestined to salvation those whom he knew in advance would make their way there. So if you think about being in the tower, okay, think about being, if you've ever been up in the tower, you can see clear enough that you can see roads. And so I imagine you're up in the tower. And you see somebody, like some of you do, yee-hawing down this street. You know, you, 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 you like, some of you actually like the mud. And it's like, you know, four-wheeling, and you're just bouncing around. And so I want you to imagine you see some of these, you know, you yee-haws. And so somebody is just zinging down the road, yee-hawing, and then you see, from because your perspective, you can see somebody yee-hawing on uh, 272nd Street. And what you see... They are going to collide. Now, you're not making them collide, but you see in advance that they're going to collide. And that's how some 
try to explain away this verse. Well, God sees what's going to happen, but he doesn't determine it. To tell you the truth, that's a little bit weak. It's a little bit weak. It's From one perspective, it kind of seems to get God off the hook, but it doesn't really erase the fact that it seems these verbs seem to indicate that God is a determining thing. But when we read something like this, again, this is one part of a conversation. And Paul's purpose in writing this is not to supply dogma for us to step in. That's, that's, not, what he's, that's not what he's trying to accomplish. When he talks about God's foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justifying and glorifying, I don't think he's thinking about individuals. I think that's the important point. He's not thinking about yes, no, yes. What he's thinking about is groups of people. That God predestined groups of people to be included. And um, Paul is arguing that connection to God for these groups is connection to good. Look what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall dis- tribulation or distress or persecution? or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's what it says. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What this is about is logic. This is logic 101. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gives us his son, is it logical that he will give us everything else since the son is the greatest thing he could give? I mean, there's bulletproof logic. If he gives you, if he doesn't spare his son, is there any good thing that he would spare you? It doesn't make sense that he would. You know, so say if you come to me and, and you say, Mike, I'd like to, you would never say this. But maybe you make your car so filthy, you said, Mike, I want to use your car. Anyways, say if I give you my car, and you can use my car, and I also have a bike here. If I give you my car, it's logical that you say, by the way, Mike, also, I'd like to be able to ride your bike, too. If I give you my car, will I give you my bike? And why would you think so? It's Bulletproof logic from the, from the greater to the lesser. If he lets me borrow his bike, his car, he's going to let me borrow his bike. If God sends his son, there's nothing he's going to withhold. And that's what Paul indicates here. How do you know that when you're connected to God, you're connected to good? Because that's bulletproof logic. Is God going to withhold any good thing from you? It doesn't make sense. If he was going to, he never would have sent his son in the first place. Um, I think what Paul is doing then, he's applying this to two groups of people. And first, the first one 
he's, I think it is us. Gentile Christians are connected to God. And God is good. So Gentile Christians are connected to good. To a Jew, there were two kinds of people in the world. There were Jews and Gentiles. Jews and everyone else. That's We're Gentiles. Some might be Jews here, but if not, then you're a Gentile. Uh, Paul assures Gentile Christians that God planned on inviting them into his family before creation. See, what some Jews were leading Gentile Christians to believe, that they were second-class spiritual citizens, kind of replacements. God has his A team, but then he also wanted to make room for the B team, Gentiles. And so he let you in, but by the skin of your teeth, and that's how some Gentile Christians were being made to feel, that they were also rans. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Gentile Christians have been connected to God per God's eternal purposes. He predestined Gentile Christians to be part of his family. He foreknew and predestined, called, justified, glorified. You are part of God's eternal purposes. That's what Paul is writing. And then Gentile Christians are going to hear that and say, oh, that's, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad I'm not the B team. I'm glad I'm not a divine afterthought. Not only is he indicating to Gentile Christians that you're connected to God, connected to good, he's also, I think, communicating Jewish Christians are are able to plug themselves into this equation as well. Jewish Christians are connected to God and connected to good. Now, that's something they really needed to hear. Jewish Christians had it worse off than Gentile Christians did. Again, they weren't in their homeland, so they were not accepted really by Gentiles. But if you were a Jewish Christian, neither were you accepted by Jews. So you, having had to leave, when because Israel is a theocracy, we live in a democracy. Israel was a theocracy, and the law of God was the law of the land. Now, when you embrace Christ as Messiah, and the government of Israel at that time did not believe that that was a reasonable thing, they say that's out of bounds, in becoming a Christian, you were ostensibly becoming a criminal. What ended up happening in Israel, that those who became Jewish Christians by embracing the Messiah, they were able to stay around for a couple of years, but then persecutions broke out. And when James, he was the first one, not the Lord's brother, one James, he was one of the twelve. When he was killed in Israel, everybody put their cloaks at the feet of the ranking Pharisee, who at the time was Saul, who became the one who writes this letter. Saul became Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was the one who presided over the stoning of James, and he was going, yep, that's right, that's right. He's getting exactly what he deserves. And so, to be a Jewish Christian in Israel was dangerous. And being expelled into the Roman Empire, the severity of the persecution lessened, but they still didn't have great lives. They just were these persona non grata, and they and they were kind of discouraged. Um, 
Paul writes to them to encourage them. You're connected to God and connected to good. There are some wonderful promises that, that Paul makes. Look at verse 31. And we'll just pick out, yeah, there's like five in a row. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him greatly, graciously give us all things? Um, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, and was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is inter- indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? All kinds of wonderful promises that you can be confident in, but there's in these major, wonderful proclamations, there's some there's some things between the lines that, hmm, hmm, some, some things that hint at trouble. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? That's what's happening. Who is to condemn? And then it really does come out of the blue. If you're reading about all these wonderful things, who is to condemn? Who will bring a charge? And this is what it says. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, that's a nice thing. (laughs) Why is that added? Why is that here? It seems to be a thorn among roses. Um, This passage comes from the psalm. Let me just read a little bit of this psalm. I think what's going on, and you read it, I think... It tells us that while this, these promises certainly apply to Gentile Christians, specifically, Paul is applying them in this letter to Jewish Christians. Here's what this psalm, this is how the psalm reads. My disgrace is before me all day long. I'm reading Psalm 44, verse 15. Just read, I'm going to read five or six verses. Try to catch the flavor of what this psalm is expressing. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back, our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? For your sake, and here's the verse, We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The point is they are suffering and not because they've done something wrong. Jewish Christians didn't do anything wrong. They were transmitting a message into the Gentile world. They were extending 
to us new covenant involvement. And because they did so, they were reviled and persecuted and treated as persona non grata. And I think that's who Paul is thinking about. They hadn't done anything wrong. Had they not done what they had done, we wouldn't be sitting here. And I think he is trying to encourage them. They are connected to God and connected to good, but they're not going to have a good life in the Roman Empire. They are going to lay down their life for us. They are transmitting gift of new covenant, the new covenant gift to Gentiles. They're suffering because of their mission. They are like Paul himself, jars of clay. Look what it says. Second Corinthians, or just listen. Paul writes, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Well, Paul says when he talks about we, here's what he describes speaks about himself and I believe those first responders who were Jews, Jewish Christians, looking up into heaven and seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ, beholding that. Now, when you behold something, God always would have those who behold it reflect it. And so what Paul is describing, these who are jars of clay himself, and I believe Jewish Christians, are looking at Jesus. They are the first responders. They see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when they behold it, they are impacted by it. And what happens, then they turn and they reflect it. And they reflected it in Rome. And then the people in Rome are saying, they, they say that they represent God. And they say, yes. And that's, that's what is happening. They are radiating what God is like. How do we know what God is like? God is like Jesus. Jesus reflects God. That's what these first responders are radiating out to the Gentile world, they are transmitting this gift. It says, though, um, God who said, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, verse 7, look where it goes. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Then it goes on to talk about a jar of clay. Now, a jar of clay is kind of a nice image. You know, God puts a precious message in a jar of clay. That's kind of quaint. Until you understand that when he puts it in a jar of clay, that jar is exposed to rough handling. And that's what the point is. Paul puts a glorious message within a vessel that doesn't get treated well. And that's the point. Look what it goes on to say, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, 
but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I have a question. Who is the we and who is the you? The we and the you here have very different experiences. Death is at work in us, the we. Life is at work in you. It was written to the Corinthians. So would you agree the you would be the individuals who live in Corinth, the Gentiles, that's the you. They are the ones who experience life. Okay, then, we know who the you is. Who is the we? The jars of clay. Certainly Paul. And I think Paul would, I think what he's thinking, and Jewish Christians in general, those dispatched into the Roman Empire, they are the jars of clay. They experience rough handling so that we can receive the precious gift that they have been transmitted to contain and to give us. I think that's what Paul is saying. We tend to dismiss the unique role of the Jews in general and Jewish Christians in particular. Even commentaries do this. I'll just read. This is what one comment, just a sentence out of it. One of the striking themes in chapter 8 is that the blessings originally promised to Israel have become the province of the church. What seems to happen in the way that some individuals would completely dismiss that there were ever Native Americans in America, would dismiss the role of Jewish Christians and indicate that it went from Jews to Christians, and it does so. But there were transmitters. There were first responders who were treated as jars of clay, who beheld the glory, went into the Roman Empire and reflected it because of their reflection. And I think that's who Paul is thinking about. And it applies to the Gentile church. But would you agree with me? These words definitely apply to Jewish Christians who were jars of clay who transmitted good news into the Gentile world. Do you agree with me? He has to be thinking of them. He would never dismiss what he and his Jewish Christian countrymen did so that the world could learn that the glory of God is found in the face of Christ. Um, In fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, what God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless every nation on the earth through you. And what Paul saw in his time, God was keeping that promise. Jewish Christians facing death so the Gentile Christians can experience life. I think that's what, when he speaks about you, God, good, I think that's what he's, he's talking about this promise. Look what he says in verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. You, God, good. Like that's what he's saying. There's nothing you can separate you from God. God can't be separated from good. There's nothing that can separate you from good. There's nothing that can separate you from good. Nothing. That's what he's saying. Certainly doesn't fit in with the experience of those who would be listening to this letter. They, again, Jewish Christians, would you agree that when we think about good, well, let me ask you a question. How would you define good? What's good? Would you agree good is a relative term? Depending on who you are, you would define good in different ways. Usually we think of good when we keep what we want and give what we don't want. But good is, again, is very relative. Would you agree with me that good to Donald Trump and good to Nancy Pelosi might be different? <laughs> maybe maybe there'll be a little bit of a difference between how they would define good. Um, here's a question. What does good mean to God? That's an important question, isn't it? When he says he causes all things to work together for good, how does God define good? That we get what we want and we keep what we have? Would you agree? That's a good question, isn't it? Because when it says, you got good, knowing what good means is, that would be helpful to add some detail to, and unfortunately the Bible does. Look what it says, and Joseph says, writes, actually it's, it's writing what Joseph said in Genesis 50. He's talking to his brothers after, you know, the legacy of Joseph's life. He had some really good things happening in the beginning of his life, the dreams and the multicolored coat, but then from there it was just a slide. I mean, gee, thrown in a pit by his brothers and then left for dead and then went into slavery and then he, he and then all these things, just one thing after another after another, but he ends up on his feet and he ends up as second in command in Egypt. And because of his administration, he has the Pharaoh and the powers that be put all this food away. And then the famine hit, which God revealed to Joseph this was going to happen. So everybody's coming to Egypt for food. And in this crowd of people coming for food, there come his brothers. And they're coming and they're standing before him and, and, at one point, they don't know who he is, but then they, some things happened, and they go, and then they come back, and this is what happens. They have a meeting. And here's what, and that's we find, here's what Joseph says. You intended to harm me. What we're going to see is Joseph forgives his brothers. But he didn't forget, did he? He didn't forget. 
You didn't say, let me see, I'm trying to recall what you did to me. Um, let me think. I, no, no, don't, no, don't, 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 don't tell me, don't tell me. Uh, let me think. Let me think. It had something to do with blood and go, I, I remember a pit. Um, you knew exactly what happened. They tried to kill him. Some people say forgive and forget. Don't buy it. Forgive and forget is mentally unhealthy. You don't have to forget in order to forgive. What does forgiveness, How is? what's it based on? I'm going to read Joseph's words. See if you can figure out why was Joseph able to forgive his brothers. Try to get that. I'm going to read. See if you can grab it. Okay? Here's what he says. Um, again, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Again, when we try to reach into our heart and find forgiveness, we don't oftentimes come out with a kindness. Well, we come out with a steaming pile of something other than that. Sometimes a steaming pile of dogma. <laughs> um, why was he able to forgive his brothers? And not just, okay, okay, but it was from the heart. How do you pull that off? He didn't forget that they tried to harm him. What did he see? You intended to harm me, but God meant it for? And you know what Joseph understood? God's good trumped his brother's bad. And because God's good trumped their bad, he could say, you know what, you wanted to slay me, but God's good trumped your bad, therefore I don't need to hold you accountable to keep me in a bad place, because you didn't have the power to keep me in a bad place. Because God's good trumped your So you know what good means? And when he looks around, here's what Joseph does. Why was he able to see that? Because he sees his brothers, but you know what else he sees? Emaciated people from all over the empire coming with their baskets. And you know what he's doing? He's directing people to give them food. Had his brothers not done that thing, he would never have come to be in Egypt. They would never have been able to have food. So you know what good means to God then? Save many lives. When the temporary suffering of some lead to the welfare of many, God calls that good. Again, that's why we call that Friday Good Friday. Temporary suffering on behalf of some, leads to welfare on behalf of many. Do you understand why we're saying this? Who were the some when Paul was writing? 
Jewish Christians suffering. And who are the ones who benefit because of their suffering? We are. They laid down their lives through the purposes of God so that we could be included. Good means the saving of many lives. Um, Good also means, well, look what it says. Hebrews 12, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So there's what we just saw, good to God means to save many lives. That's how God defines good. Another definition for good we find in this passage, and here it is. Share in his holiness. Let me tell you what share in his holiness means in the context. What it describes is people being disciplined. Discipline is not fun. Discipline is when you don't have what you want and you can't keep what you have. That's what discipline is, but it's not punishment. It it hurts. But it's putting someone in a place where they experience some difficult things so that somebody else might benefit. That's the purpose of discipline. It's not you, it's you're not in a place that you can be a conduit yet, but I'm going to work in you to create in you the ability to be a conduit. And that process whereby we are fitted to do things is called discipline. In the context, what it describes holiness in this way. When you think of holiness, when we think of holiness, we tend to think about someone who leads the way. Who's the holy one? They are the ones who forge a path spiritually. They don't struggle. They don't suffer. They're too spiritual to do all that. In this context, you know what the holy ones do? It describes that they make level paths for the feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. So just to let you know, When Paul, when the writer of Hebrews describes holiness, he doesn't depict holiness as someone in front of the crowd. Follow me. (laughs) He's talking about someone laying back. And you know why they're laying back? Because they know that there are some who can't keep up. And they lay back in order to make the path so that the individuals who lay back won't stumble. Do you know where holiness is evidenced? Not out in front of the crowd, but behind it, looking for those who are stumbling. When God puts his children through some difficult things, but they look back because they know pain, In order to support those who are lagging back, God calls that good. When God allows his children, causes his children to experience difficult things, you, connected to God, if God didn't want a connection with you, would he have sent his son to die for you? The connection between you and God is solid. And he wants you to know that. And he also wants you to know 
that the connection between God and good is solid. If I talk to you in 50 years, 60, let's, let's make it some of you are younger than some of us. Let's say 100 years. Some of you might be alive in 100 years. Probably not. I might ask you, tell me about good. And at that point, you'll be able to do. You'll be able to point to some hard things that happen. You know what we're going to be able to do in 100 years? We're going to be able to look up some of our Jewish Christian brothers. Maybe. And you know what we might be able to do? Thanks for being a jar of clay. I never would have been here had you not contained this message. And early on in the church's history, the church became anti-Semitic very quickly. We're not going to be anti-Semitic a hundred years from now. We're going to embrace those whom God dispatched to be jars of clay so that we could be included in God's forever family. Um, but it's, this is what God's like. If you're connected to God, you're connected to good. Um, Amy Carmichael, I'm going to close with this. She was a missionary to orphans in India. In the 1920s, she rescued... Um, Hundreds of orphan children, especially little girls that were going to be used in um, Hindu in rituals, sexual temple rituals to Hindu gods. And so she rescued these little Indian girls from being victimized in this way. In 1931, Amy prayed, God, please do with me whatever you want. Do anything that will help me to serve you better. And she really meant it. Then what happened that same day she fell suffered fractures that would cripple her for the rest of her life. And while she was incarcerated, not incarcerated, well, incapacitated, and she was confined to bed, she wrote a bunch of things. Some of those girls were able to visit her, but she was also had time to write. She wrote this poem, Have Thou No Scar. Oh, Brett, come on, and, and we're going to have a closing song. But I'm going to, while they're coming... I'm going to read this poem. It's very short. It's called, Hast Thou No Scar? It's by Amy Carmichael. She wrote it again from her bed. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. (coughs) Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that encompassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? 
Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound? No scar? Father, thank you for your good purposes and promises. When we're connected to you, we're connected to good eternally. And I pray that we would be able to see it and know that and believe it more clearly and channel it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.